Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground, all the fish in the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be for food for you. As I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat the flesh with its life, that is, its blood And your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will set it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Verse 18, the sons of Noah who went from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. And he drank the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward. They did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth 
and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Verse 28, after the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. This is God's word, and let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you again for our portion this morning. And Lord, we ask that you help us understand what has been said regarding the covenant and agreement between you and the inhabitants of the earth in these days. And Lord, may you help us with the difficult part of this passage to understand what is meant by something that we wonder why it's even there. And Lord, if it be that it's to show us our own heart and our own sin, Lord, may we be open enough to hear your words. And Lord, may you be God and may we be quiet. Lord, we ask all this in your precious and holy name. Amen. Well, we're going to split what we read into uh, two parts, and uh, we'll try to keep a quick pace as we did last week and see if we can get through this. There's a lot of material, Um, but the two parts, we'll look at first a brand new world. This is after the flood. Last week, we finished where the door opened, and the eight people who'd been inside the ark for one whole year are now out. They can smell the fresh air. Everything's new. So a brand new world with a brand new covenant. We'll add something with that as well. And then, as the last paragraphs stated, same old sin. That traveled in the boat as well. That was preserved. The flood didn't drown our sin nature. And here in Genesis 9, um, to start with uh, the brand new world with a brand new covenant, covenant is mentioned seven times. Uh, In case we might forget it, that seems to be the the purpose, the thrust of those first few paragraphs. And just as God had established a covenant with Adam, God now establishes a covenant with Noah. So what is a covenant? What does that mean? Most of this will be explained in detail when we get to chapter 12 with the Abrahamic covenant. Because that's a lot more detailed, there's a lot more involved, and we can begin to break down the difference between, say, a covenant and a contract, or a covenant and just an agreement, or a covenant and a list of expectations. Covenants have all those things, but they're structured differently than, say, a contract. We'd be more familiar with that, that's business terms. But maybe someone's asking the question, well, when did... God establish a covenant with Adam. This is the first time you've brought up covenant. In fact, it's the first time it's brought up in the scriptures. Covenant wasn't mentioned in the Garden of Eden. We learn from Hosea chapter 6 that Adam sinned against the covenant. That's where we found that there was a first covenant. The Noahic covenant is the second. So is it the same type of thing? They just, you know, the the Contents of the package are the same, but we rename them Ad- Adamic, Noahic, Abrahamic, Mosaic, uh, Davidic covenant. Well, uh, there's more similarities than differences, but there are differences between these two. Let me give you some of the similarities to start with, and you'll have to draw on what we've covered in the past few weeks. And uh, if you're visiting with us today or you missed some of these, uh, unfortunately, you might be catching are playing catch-up, but we'll, we'll try our best to back the truck up every now and then to make sure you're not left behind. 
But uh, the language of Genesis 1 and 2 compared with what we're studying here in Genesis 8 and 9, you've, you've got the unwinding of creation with the flood. You, you remember how it sounded uh, that in Genesis 1 and 2, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And then God began to separate the land from the water. So he's taking chaos and ordering it. Well, when the flood broke out, that was reversed. The waters came back over the land, and you've got chaos and watery format. Well, that happened in both instances. Both worlds are formed from water and chaos. You could also take the step and say that both Adam and Noah are associated with the image of God. That's mentioned all through 1 and 2, and then all through 8 and 9. That the image of God didn't drown in the flood. That Noah's still made in the image of God. Both Adam and Noah are said to walk with God. That's, that's only said of Enoch and no one else. We know that God walked with Adam and Eve, so we can say that Adam walked with God. But it is said explicitly that Noah walked with God and Enoch walked with God. But that's a big deal. We don't see it very often and we don't see it since. Uh, both rule over the animals. We, we just read how God's going to uh, put him in charge, just like he put Noah in charge of the animals. They're, I always, you know, some little kid sitting in Sunday school class, did Noah have to rename them? Or did he know the names before? I'll have to ask when I get to heaven. Both are told to be fruitful and multiply, and both had no trouble with that. Uh, both worked the ground. Both follow similar, similar patterns of sinning. We'll get into that in a moment. Specifically, both their sin results in an embarrassing nakedness. Don't know if you've ever put both of those together, but that's where it ends. Both have three named sons, which is unusual because in all the genealogies, there's a named son. It may say that they had other sons and daughters, but in the case of Adam... Do you remember Cain, Abel, and Seth? And then in the case of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Only those genealogies have three named sons. And then both sets of sons divide into chosen and not chosen, or elect and non-elect, or blessed and cursed. Remember the, the, the family tree with Adam and Eve, you've got those three sons. Cain killed Abel, and Seth was the line of blessing. That's the branch that Noah comes from. And then we're going to see this morning that of those three sons, one of those sons is blessed among the other two. So if that's the similarities, uh, what are the differences between the first and the second covenant? Well, the big one, the major difference, is that the Noahic covenant assumes a fallen world rather than a garden paradise. When God explains to Adam what he expects of him, there's no sin present. In fact, it takes Adam disobeying God for sin to be introduced into the world. So, I mean, just imagine a situation where there's, there's good, but there's no bad yet. That would be a different way of handling things than in a world where it's bad all over. So, because the sin nature didn't die, it's carried along, this second covenant has room for dealing with people 
who have a sin problem. That's the major difference. Talked last week about how there were sinners outside the ark and there were sinners inside the ark and the difference between being outside the ark and inside the ark was God's grace. He chose to save eight of them and destroy the rest of them. Well, all eight of those sinners are now outside the ark on the planet. It's a start over with them. God saved them from judgment, but they brought their sin with them to the new world. Now, one commentator said this. I like the way that he put it. This covenant, the covenant with Noah, is a covenant of long-suffering. That, that would be its banner. Made by God with all humans and even with all creatures. Did you notice that it's for the animals too? That God said, I won't destroy the world, the people or the animals on it. It limits the curse of the earth. It checks nature and curbs its destructive power. The awesome violence of water is reined in. A regular alteration of seasons is introduced. Now this is where some people speculate. It's way back there. Science only gives us but so much evidence. But it seems as if the four seasons were not present in the first world. But this second one. uh, That there would be this routine. um, I don't know what it would be like not to have a spring, summer, fall, and winter. I don't know what it would be like to sit in the house with a a small heater at my feet and say, if I can just make it till it warms up again, only to say a few weeks later, if it'll just cool off, I can't stand it. Um, it, it, There's a growing season. There's a harvest season. There's a let it rest season. This is the, the world we know. Now, even though the curse of sin is still present, God has promised to preserve humanity. The restraints here are on God. He's the one saying, I will not do such and such. The rainbow that we're going to talk about, if we look at the specific language, is to remind who? God, that he's not going to destroy the world anymore. We see it, and we're reminded of his promise not to destroy the world anymore. It's as if the idea of sin, and there are some things that are not to be done... We see the first instance of capital punishment on record. There will be consequences, not only for shedding blood, but even eating animals with the blood still in them, as animals would eat other animals. So there there are some expectations set here. But most of them are on God's end, a covenant of long-suffering. Let's look back at verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal, some of every clean bird, offered burnt offerings on the altar. So that's why he took seven pairs of those animals. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, that's way different than all the other religious depictions of their flood accounts. You know, the flood in most of those accounts was because the gods were so angry at the people being so loud and that the gods couldn't sleep, that they just drowned them all. And then by the time that the few that were saved were, were out of the ark, they were so famished for their praises that they ravenously devoured them. What does it say God did? It's a sweet-smelling, pleasing aroma. That smells good. 
This is a self-controlled God. This isn't anything like the other stories from the other religions. Uh, He says, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. And then chapter 9 is a little more specific. That was at the end of 8. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. This is the sign of the covenant. I will make between you and every living creature for all future generations. I've set my bow in the cloud. Verse 14, when I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, that's your reminder, mine as well. So as far as the contents, we'll just summarize this quickly. Number one, God will never flood the earth again the same way he did in Genesis 6. That is part of this second covenant. Number two, God gave in addition to the green plants every moving thing that lives for food. Everything. You got the plants in the first covenant. You get the meat in the second covenant. Now some say, well, that doesn't make sense to me. Everything? Well, why in Acts with the blanket with Peter there was clean and unclean? Well, that's because once God separates his chosen people from the rest of the world, he's going to have specific instructions for them. They're going to look different, act different, eat different, dress different. So there'll be some restrictions. Some things for them will be unclean that are clean for everyone else. And then when that has run its course, Christ has come. He's paid the sin debt. Veil of the temple's ripped in two. Eat what you want. Barbecue and shrimp are back on the menu. They're on the menu here. Everything. I wouldn't want to eat everything. But there's no restrictions. If you want it, you can eat it. Um, Number three, God uses the rainbow as a sign of his covenant for all future generations. And um, I think there's a reason why rainbows have always been somewhat of an amazing uh, thing. I always like to watch... When the clouds break, the sun shines through, and there's still moisture in droplet form in the the atmosphere. Its prismatic effect, uh, uh, effect is shown. You can watch traffic slow down. I remember on I-40 one time, we're just rolling along. There's a big rainbow traffic jam. And I think that might be the only traffic jam I thought was pretty cool. Do people know that this is a reminder we're never all going to drown like in the days of Noah? And then fourthly, and there we could tease out each one of these having to do with uh, the other things about the blood and the food and uh, giving of one's life. But God will keep his promise for as long as the earth remains, as long as you've got four seasons. Now, at some point, this world will be changed again new heavens and new earth. But until that comes, this covenant will last. This doesn't get undone by the next covenant with Abraham. A lot of folks will call this the covenant of common grace. That though we like to look at the world and say that there's so much wrong with it, there's a lot right with it. It could get way worse. So there is God's grace 
that applies to everyone that keeps this from going like it went before, which necessitated a flood fix. Not only will God say, hey, I won't destroy the world again, but I'm going to keep the world from getting to that point again. doesn't mean that sin is beaten. It's still there. So as already said, this covenant set of expectations presumes a world with sin. This agreement envisioned a world of conflict, however. This is where we'll start addressing some of these things we mentioned a moment ago. In what we just read are instances of humans killing animals. You have to do that to eat them. Well, most of the time. I know some people swallow their food alive. That's weird. Wouldn't do that, especially if it wiggles on the way down. But animals will sometimes kill humans. Wild animals. Did you notice that in this record when we read it, unlike the first, that the animals will, will stand off away from humans, that they will fear them. But there are times where animals attack humans, maybe kill them. We also read about humans killing other humans here. And if that happens, I'll require that man's blood for spilling another man's blood. So, there's a law for putting humans to death for killing other humans. In this covenant, that wasn't a part of the other one, even though we saw that take place with Cain and Abel. And these laws are put into place to uphold justice. Why? Because God speaks as though injustice, injustice is taken for granted. Under this covenant... There will be some things that are outside the reach of justice, outside the reach of fairness. Bad will happen. that They cannot be taken care of, covered over, made right until something changes. And that, of course, will be God sending His Son the fullness of time. So this agreement even involves a sign in the clouds to remind God to stay His hand of judgment. So there's a lot of things put into place taking account for the fact that this world is full of sinners. There will need to be restraints. There'll need to be restraints between men and animals, men and men, and God and man. Quite telling. Lots of questions come up, though, when we get to the next paragraph. So I saved a little more time for this, even though I wish I could speed through it. Um, Brand new world, brand new covenant, same old sin. And of all the ways to explain that the world is sinful, why do we need to know this about Noah and his vineyard and his tent and his clothes that he wasn't wearing and what his boys did about it or one of those boys in particular? Well, let's see what we have because... Uh, we have to, as students of the Bible, believing this to be inspired, know that it is here for a reason or it wouldn't be here at all, right? We just need to find what that reason is. It's not like Moses thought, I need to put something here so weird that people will be scratching their heads till kingdom come. Though if he were trying, I think he pulled it off. There's some of this we're just not going to understand or, or, or what to do with. No, the story, as difficult as it is, serves to tell at least one thing about Israel's history. We'll make that note. And at least one thing about humanity's sin. So there's something in here that will help us with Israel's timeline and history. 
something that will help us understand even our own sin problem. So first, what does it teach us about Israel's history? Well, if you're guessing that it has to do with yet another genealogy, you are correct. Lots of genealogies in Genesis, and we've got another one right here. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan, and Ham, verse 22, the father of Canaan. And then verse 25, when Noah says, Cursed be Canaan. That's genealogical references. Now, it's important here, and it's going to come up as we unroll this scroll or whatever. Canaan was Ham's son, which would be Noah's grandson. But we never see in the genealogies a little parenthetical statement, like a, a editorial comment. Oh, by the way, uh, this is the guy whose son was Canaan. Canaan is mentioned three times in here. He's grandson. That doesn't happen. So what we're looking at is, yes, this is genealogy, but taking a step away from that to explain what happened for purposes of information that will be useful later. Now you've got to kind of uh, take into account that we're behind the eight ball here. Uh, I don't expect any of that to make sense to any of you because we really don't often think about other people's families, do we? Especially other cultures thousands of years ago. I mean... Didn't we talk about Ancestry.com not long ago and figuring out who's related to who and you're all excited when you get to and you go to your family and you find out nobody cares? I mean, r- really, we're, we're, we're myopic people. So it's a stretch, even for Bible students in church on a Sunday, to want to know what difference does it make that Canaan is the son of Ham, who's the son of Noah. Well, it's important... How many of you have ever heard of the Canaanites? Mm. Oh, back to Sunday school. Joshua fit the battle of Jericho and all these other places fighting the Canaanites. Now, there's a lot of stuff that, that, that goes on. You've got the rest of Genesis, starting with Abraham, who's going to be the father of Isaac, father of Jacob, the father of Joseph. Uh, They're in Egypt by then. Then you're going to need a Moses to get them out of Egypt and then into the wilderness when Pharaoh lets them go. And then they wander around for how long? Forty years griping. And then do what? The conquest of the land. This is the book of Joshua, right? And he's going to fight with these people forever, it seems. There you go. That's their ancestor named after Canaan who was the son of who? Ham, who was the son of who? Noah. All right? To make sense of this, we've got to know what happens between Noah and Ham. What happened between Noah and Ham? The Bible doesn't tell us what happened between Noah and Ham. Excuse me. (coughs) We just know that Noah's really mad with Ham when he wakes up from being drunk. Right? Right? All right, Noah planted a vineyard, not a problem. Noah made wine with the grapes, that's fine. 
Noah got drunk on that wine, really drunk, not good. Noah was drunk enough that he lost all self-respect and was found indecently wasted in his tent. Really bad. Are you all enjoying this as much as I am? (laughs) Bad as this sounds, what Noah did is not seen as as bad as what Ham did. And what did Ham do in Noah's compromised state? Not explicitly, we're not told. So whatever it was exactly, and if you want to do some homework on there, be shocked as what people think might be what could have taken place. Usually our minds go to the gutter before they go uh, into the clouds. But, (coughs) I'm sorry, Um, think of it this way. What the other sons did as a corrective measure to the compromised indecency of their father. And what did they do? Remember it described as putting a blanket on their shoulders and walking backward, looking ahead. Noah's behind them and they cover him. Whatever that is, consider it a covering. Okay, the problem's now fixed. Well, I would think that if that's the corrective measure, they've covered their father's embarrassment without looking themselves. I think that's probably a pretty good indication of what Ham did. He didn't do that at all. He looked. And then I think he laughed. And I don't think he felt as his brothers did. This is bad. This is not good. This is not something to laugh at. This is something we should cover. So, amused at one 600-year-plus-old dad in a very precarious situation, um, how might we think through that now? Can you think of times where we'd find ourselves in vulnerable situations? I, I don't think that we need to entertain the idea, okay, what would it be like if we really got hammered? such that we didn't know who we were or what we were doing. That's not necessary. Um, Sometimes we trade our own faculties for some form of enjoyment, other times by mistake, sometimes by accident, sometimes by necessity. Would any of you agree that it's probably a good idea to swear your family in, to not record anything you say or do after anesthetic is applied to your body? (laughs) Wisdom teeth colonoscopy name your poison thank you Seth go with ice too (laughs) cheers remember the last time I crunched ice in the microphone do you anybody y'all don't remember that last time somebody brought me some with ice I crunched it and then I apologized for crunching it You know, this makes me feel bad or good that you forgot that I did something embarrassing, but doesn't really help me with you remembering what happens in sermons. (laughs) Mm. Thank you, Seth. Um, Sometimes we get in the, the reason why we wouldn't want anybody filming it is because we don't know what we might say. YouTube's full of that stuff. Hateful family members that put their 
loved one up there for everybody to laugh at. There's other times where this would happen, naturally, to maybe every last one of us given enough time. You know, we come into this world absolutely dependent on others. We can't feed ourselves, clean ourselves. Sometimes we leave this world that way. Uh, the diseases of Alzheimer's, dementia, Parkinson's require that people that love us do things for us that would involve being right in the middle of situations that would sound like the place Noah is. But that's not where Noah is. Noah brought that on himself. Those two things are, are totally different. Uncovering one's nakedness that we read in the law all the time has specific parameters. Those aren't included. But in this case, what you've got is a, a familial disrespect of one younger generation to the older and very new in this new world when there's still only a few people on the planet. So just to be clear, Noah hasn't been given... Um, the power to curse whole races of people just because he's mad at his son for elder abuse. This only shows the beginning of a rift between lines of post-flood descendants. You want to know what happened with those three sons and what happened with the eventual lines that trace from, say, Shem and Ham and where the Canaanites came from and why they were a thorn in the flesh to the Israelites? Well, You've got to understand that when this was written, it was written way later. And if Noah's, not Noah, Moses is the one writing it, the people that are reading it are the ones that are there fighting the Canaanites. They read this and they go, oh, so that's where it started. There's the beginning of the bad blood. The son disrespected his father and in a bad way. The other sons covered it. Those sons are still on the same sheet of paper. The other is not at all. So uh, Noah wakes up from his wine, finds out what's happened, curses his grandson. And there's a question there. Why not curse Ham? Well, Ham just got blessed with this Noahic covenant. Both times we heard, and God said to Noah and his sons. So maybe he says, well, it won't do me any good to curse someone who's just been blessed. I'll curse the apple that fell off that tree, like father, like son. Maybe that had already become apparent. We're just speculating here. But this isn't all that teaches us here. It teaches us about Israel's history. There's where that came from. But it also teaches us about our own sin and our own sin nature. Adam's sin involved, listen to this, eating more than what he should have eaten, right? God says you can have it all except one tree. It's a pretty good deal. I don't know any time I've ever been offered 99.9999% uh, and was ill with it. But there's where sin's introduced to the human race. Adam eating more than he should have. Sin isn't introduced, but it's become evident, at least the first record of it in Scripture in the New World after the flood, by Noah drinking more than he should have drunk. We've talked about this, and the Bible is clear. 
Proverbs is probably the best case because both times in the book of Proverbs, one, wine is given to glad the heart is a gift from God. Wine is a mocker. I'm sure at some point Noah's heart was gladdened with the wine that he grew, but then it went further and began to become a mocker. went too far. You can, you can do this anytime you so choose, but think of anything considered a gift from God. And you can, you can take that to a point to where it's not a gift anymore. It's an abuse of a gift that can harm us, maybe even more powerfully than it can help us. You just pick whatever it is. Just about everything under the sun can be carried to a point. And think about it. This is how we know we got into sin, by taking something God called good and taking it further outside the bounds that he had designed it for. So there's, there's no rocket science here. It makes sense. Now the result of each of those cases was being found in a state of shameful nakedness. God said, hey, Adam, what have you done? Well, um, first it was Eve. Well, snake deceived me. And then with Adam, well, she gave it to me. And even before that, they knew they were naked and were ashamed. And with Noah, well, I don't know that he had much of a comment at that point. It seems he was passed out. Both of them shameful nakedness. The similarity ends at that point, though, because that's where the two stories go in different directions. With Adam, God mercifully provides a cover for Adam. Now, who is Adam to God? Adam is God's creation. In fact, we call God Father in heaven. Where do we get that from? Well, Jesus said it. Even though Jesus is God, he considers him his father. So how did God treat his first human son, son of his creation, as well as Eve, after their sin? Mercifully? covered it over at what cost some animals shedding of blood ultimately the shedding of his own son's blood let's not forget the end result so then you've got a new start a new covenant Noah and his sons something bad happens two of the boys do the same thing God did mercifully cover a sinful situation. One son makes a mockery of it. That doesn't work. There's your problem. So, Adam fell in the garden with no inherited sin. Take these things a step further. Noah, with Adam's inherited sin, has now fallen. Both are said to have walked with God. So we know how God dealt with the sin. We know how Noah's sons, two of them dealt with the sin. We know how one didn't deal with it at all. And it doesn't say that he helped with the blanket at all. But in both worlds, the first one and the second one, pre-flood and post-flood, both men that walked with God fell into sin. 
what does this tell us about our hopes of living a sinless life? And I would think that no one would think of such a thing because we're all here in church. You have to admit you're a sinner to join the club. Right? Now, if we notice this fall didn't happen in the middle, if we're talking about Noah, in the middle of the end of the world, in crisis, in battle mode, when did it happen to Noah? After it was all over, after he'd planted a vineyard? Sounds pretty much at leisure. That, that'll tell you a lot about the way the devil does his thing. He's not going to bother you in the middle of a crisis. He'll bother you in the middle of nothing. When you think, well, I got through that. Doing pretty good. Noah was safe from the flood, but Noah wasn't safe from himself. Sin is still there. The problem that ruined the garden, banished man and woman from God's presence, required a flood to reset its out-of-control trajectory. The sin that made it all possible, necessary, is still alive, and it's loose on the earth. So if this was all we had of our Bibles, I don't know that we'd have much hope. But wait, what has happened just about every one of these chapters that we've been reading? And with Acts, it was the same way. It's the same way in much of the scriptures. You've got some blessings and cursings, victories and losses, and the reality of the whole thing is driven home. We are sinners in need of a Savior. And then there's this ray of hope, right? Because it sounds like once we got to the flood and the waters receding, the bird doesn't come back, the gate drops, there's leaves rustling, air's fresh, this is all great. Until you get through the story of Noah's vineyard. Look at the last part of this. You have to turn back if uh, last part of chapter 9. And if your Bible is uh, structured with the poetry set over, Quite a bit, you, you can see where the curse be Canaan comes from. Servant of servants he shall be. But look at verse 26. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. Now there's a difference between verse 26 and 7 than there was in 25. Who's cursing Canaan? We don't know, but since no one's mentioned and Noah's doing the talking, it's probably Noah who's doing the cursing. And again, we already said, can Noah curse unilaterally and it come true, prophetically speaking? No, we're just finding out where the beef was between the Canaanites and the Israelites. But then when you get to 26, blessed be Shem or blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Noah's blessing the name of the Lord here. And then verse 27, may God enlarge Japheth. Now Japheth sounds like the word enlarge in Hebrew, so there's kind of a play on words there. But if we were to take those two names and we were to fast forward through the Bible all the way to where those names would change to something that we might recognize, 
So there's a lot of history going on. We've got millennia between, say, this and our New Testaments where Jesus is on the earth. But Shem, you ever heard of the word Shemite? How about Semite? How about anti-Semite? That's the one you hear the most. Well, that's the line that the Jews come from. Fast forward long enough, they'll be called Jews. and you're, Oh, I know who they are. And then the others, Japheth, fast forward way down the tunnel of time. They settle in the north and the western parts of Israel. They're known as Gentiles. Now, what does it say? Blessed be the Lord God of Shem. That Lord God will bless Shem. They become the apple of his eye. Start with a man named Abram from Ur of the Chaldees. And very dramatic history for most of our Bibles. So that, we see, takes place. But as far as Japheth, dwelling in the tents of Shem, the one blessed of God, as far as our Old Testaments go, we never see those groups of people intersect. And we never see anything near a fulfillment of Shem living under the, or, or Japheth living under the tents of Shem. But when we get to the New Testament, and Jesus teaches and heals, is wrongfully accused, killed, buried, raises again, standing on the Mount of, of Ascension with his disciples, he gives them their orders. Now go into all the world, teach the nations baptizing them in the name of Jesus. You teach them what I taught you. Now go and do it. By the time you flip over to the book of Acts, they're doing it, right? How does it go? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the world. And as you get about halfway through Acts, when Peter and Paul are fed up with the Jews who won't listen, where do they go? The Gentiles. So when Jesus says it's finished, the veil rends, lightning cracks, it's over. Payment paid in full. That veil said to everybody, stay out. This is a Jewish thing and only one man in one day out of the whole year can ever come into this place because I'm holy and none of you are. I will keep you at arm's length. The temple veil is rent basically saying, come on in. I've paid for it all. Be my guest and bring Japheth with you. It's a big tent. There's your ray of hope. Sin will be defeated, but not until it's made fools out of all of us. Because none of us can resist it. And if we can, it's only by Christ's help. It's only with the help of this book. It's only mercy. Even the men that walk with God. You want to start making a list? What about the man after God's own heart? He'll take another man's wife. Then he'll kill the husband to cover it up. Then he'll keep it a secret until he almost wastes away. Till the prophet comes and puts his finger in his face and says, You are the man. This is the guy who wrote poetry about Jesus. In, in, in what? Caves being chased to death? When does he fall? While his soldiers are in battle. And he's looking out a window at something that he shouldn't. 
anyone thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. The story here is not necessarily about Noah or Ham or Canaan. The story is about all of us. We're all sinners. And the story is about not Shem or Japheth, but Jesus, who's going to fix it. And for the next month, let's just talk about when he came here to start with. And then in the spring, we'll talk about what he did after he grew up. And in between, we'll just keep talking about stuff like this that supports Easter and Christmas. And we'll do it until we die. And hopefully somebody will hear it and they'll come along and we can spend eternity together. What do you say? Sound like a good way to celebrate the holidays? I think we're going to sing about the the best song of all the Christmas songs here in a moment. But before we do, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for an ugly story in Genesis because it exposes the ugly hearts that each of us carry inside our bodies. Lord, we thank you for the beautiful Son of God who gave himself to pay off all that debt we owe you. Lord, we thank you for coming. We thank you for staying. Lord, we thank you for leaving in order to come again. And Lord, may we be about the business of telling anyone who will listen. Lord, thank you for these things. There's much more we know where this came from. So Lord, bring us back next time. And Lord, may we sing. May we pray. May we listen. And may we hear. We ask all this in your name. Amen.